Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Sahana Vavadu Sahano Bunaktu Sahaviryam Karavavai Tejasvinavadi Tamastu Mavid Vishavahai Om Shanti 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 May Brahman protect us, may he guide us and give us strength and right understanding. May love and harmony be with us all. Peace, peace, peace. And good morning in this calm between the storms. Quite a display last night. So our topic today is Shiva Shakti, the sacred androgyne. You see, we've just come through three pujas where we think of God as the Divine Mother, Durga Puja, Kali Puja, Holy Mother. And we'll be coming into pujas where we think of God in male aspects, uh, Vivekananda, uh, Shiva Ratri, and Ramakrishna. So today we're going to examine the idea that God is both male and female, and hence really neither. Now let's look at some of the things that Sri Ramakrishna would say. He said, if you are aware of the male principle, you cannot ignore the female principle. He who is aware of the father must also think of the mother. One day she, meaning the Divine Mother Kali, showed me Shiva and Shakti everywhere. Everywhere I saw the communion of Shiva and Shakti. Shiva and Shakti existing in all living things, men, animals, trees, plants. I saw them in the communion of all male and female elements. In another instance he said, I clearly see that God is everything. He himself has become all. I see that whatever is, is God. He is everything. Again, he is beyond everything. And he would say that God has form, and he is formless too. Further, he is beyond form and formlessness. No one can limit him. It is said in the Vedas that Brahman is beyond mind and words. The heat of the sun of knowledge melts the ice-like form of the personal God. On attaining the knowledge of Brahman and communing with it in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, one realizes Brahman, the infinite, without form or shape and beyond mind and words. So Sri Ramakrishna, you see, recognized that God can be with form and be seen as either male or female or without form and that we can see everything as God in a male aspect or everything as God in the female aspect. In another instance, he would say this, all women are the embodiment of Shakti. It is the primal power that has become woman and appears to us in the form of women. It is said in the Adhyatma Ramayana that Narada and others praised Rama saying, O Rama, Uh, Thou alone art all that we see as male, and Sita all that we see as female. Thou art Indra, Sita Indrani. Thou art Shiva, and Sita is Shivani. Thou art man, and Sita is woman. What more need I say? Thou alone dost exist everywhere there is male, and Sita everywhere there is female. So it's recognized that we tend to see things dualistically, and yet 
We also need to understand that we can perceive everything as either one or the other, or as both simultaneously, or if you prefer, as neither. So here is another quote from Sri Ramakrishna. The Chit Shakti, consciousness energy, Mahamaya has become the 24 cosmic principles. So now we're going to see everything as the mother. The Divine Mother revealed to me that men and women in this house were mere masks. Inside them was the same divine power, kundalini, that rises up through the six spiritual centers of the body. So we're going to explore today this unity within the duality, the duality within the unity, the unity that appears as a duality, and this concept of Shiva Shakti that we'll find occurs in all sorts of spiritual traditions. And we'll see what the implication is for our spiritual practice. Now, this Shiva Shakti usually is understood as this male-female dichotomy. And we're going to see how our language and our society, the social order in which we tend to live, tends to uphold a particular dualistic outlook. But we'll come to understand, I hope today, that we need to transcend our own gender identity to realize our own true spiritual nature, which is beyond any idea of gender, just as God's true identity is beyond any gender identity. And we'll be aided in this journey from a global perspective of the ideas of gender and by the myths and symbols that we find in all sorts of spiritual traditions in the world. So what is this general term that we might use to represent what we recognize as the unity of this male-female dichotomy or duality that we perceive manifest in this universe and that can help us to a more transcendent understanding of this duality? Well, it's called in general the sacred androgyne. Now, androgyne is one of two common terms that indicates an individual which has attributes of both male and female. Another term that's sometimes used is the hermaphrodite. But both of these generally have the same meaning, that it's some individual which incorporates aspects of both male and female. Now let us remember that, uh, what the main obstacles are to our spiritual progress. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, in one instance, that the ego is our main problem and that we need to transcend the ego. And in other instances, he would often point out that lust and greed are the main obstacles to our spiritual progress. Now, in both of these situations, we find that gender identification is involved. And the more we can transcend that, the better. Our identification with our body is very tied up with gender. That's one of the first things we think of when we think of ourselves, that we're categorized in one of uh, two categories. And lust also has to do with seeing the world in this dualistic way and yourself as one gender and others as another. So let us read another quote from Sri Ramakrishna. As long as God retains the ego in man, he should establish a definite relationship with God, calling him as master, mother, friend, or the like. And then he goes on and he says, I spent one year as a handmaid, the handmaid of the divine mother, the embodiment of Brahman. I used to dress myself as a woman. I put on a nose ring. One can conquer lust by assuming the attitude of a woman. So you see, uh, in order to lessen our idea of body identity or lustful impulses, 
this idea of an androgyne's sacred symbol will be very helpful. It is a symbol of a unified state. It deals with the underlying unity of the universe. And of course, we usually experience the universe as a, a world of dualities and multiplicity. And we frequently symbolize that as a masculine-feminine duality. But the androgyne is situated beyond this duality. It symbolizes the unity or combination of these two. And at once it symbolizes what we might think of as the original or primal undifferentiated wholeness and the goal of life to reach a more conscious undifferentiated wholeness. Jung uh, used to speak in those terms, how we would uh, start life as sort of an unconscious uh, undifferentiated wholeness. And then as we become conscious of the world, we think of things in terms of dualities. And then we have to sort of integrate ourselves back into a more conscious wholeness. So it's this reintegrating back into this primal unity, our original source. Uh, some uh, people describe the passage through this world of duality as a necessary step to becoming fully conscious of that lost reality of oneness. So in this manifest universe, we have many lives, and sometimes we'll live them as a woman, sometimes we'll live it as a man, depending on the kinds of lessons and things we need to learn and the experiences we need to have. But this is just our perception of the universe. This, uh, what we want to try to do is to realize that our true identity is neither of those. Those are just temporary masks that we take on in order to experience the world in a variety of ways. It's interesting that the word yoga means union of opposites. So the goal of yoga is really to transcend pairs of opposites. So this body is just a temporary dwelling of the soul, and our true nature is beyond the dualities of gender. Gender is not ultimately a fact, an important factor of who we are. Now, if we're asked, we often, you know, we have to fill out forms and so forth, and you have to click which gender you are and all these things. It's, uh, this is a very common way that society tends to, to label people and put us into various categories. But it's not something that essentially makes us who we are. There is something else that makes you, you. So the androgynes have a significant place in our human religious imagination. Uh, these androgynous people or deities or images and symbols combine characteristics of the typically male and female uh, prototypes into one universal whole. In the past, many cultures have revered this blended wholeness, this perfect union of dualities, this more genderless human being, this sacred androgyne. So let us look at some examples of this and uh, how we get from oneness to dualities and back again to the oneness. The third aphorism of creation in the Rosicrucian doctrine goes like this. The one became two. The neuter became bisexual, male and female. The two in one evolved from the neuter, and the work of generation has begun. Now, in this third aphorism of creation, uh, we are directed to apply our attention 
to the concept of the world soul, the first manifestation of the eternal parent, as a universal being that's neither male nor female, but it combines within itself both the principles of masculinity and femininity. So from this standpoint, this subtle archetypal androgynous blueprint, you could say, filters down into all aspects of the universe. But as we get further and further into the manifest universe, the sharpness of the duality tends to increase. And our idea is to try to go back and transcend that duality into a place of more unified wholeness. From the standpoint of Kundalini Yoga, this would take place uh, at the third eye chakra, where the descending uh, male imprint and the ascending female imprint merge into a knowledge that there is this duality, but it is a oneness duality. So our spiritual practices, you see, are designed to take us from this world of dualities back to the state of oneness. So the androgyne is at both neither masculine nor feminine, and yet contains both. It is at once the symbol of the not yet manifest being whose polarities are still yet merged in the unity, and the manifested being who has realized their reintegration back into the primal unity. As one yoga teacher put it, the androgyne state is the complete human state in which complementary aspects, far from opposing, mutually balance in an ideal manner. Through the full attainment of the state of androgyne, the human being truly recovers a heavenly divine wholeness. And that brings out a, an interesting point. We think of worlds of dualities as pairs of opposites, but sometimes it's more useful to think of them as pairs of complementary things rather than opposites. Opposites tend to think of um, conflict somehow, whereas complement tends to think more in terms of uh, things that are getting along. And I think that's a more useful approach when you're trying to integrate the two. Now, dualisms in our various traditions are expressed in a multiplicity of ways. And, well, one of the primary ways is to think of the world in terms of masculine and feminine. It's not the only way. And sometimes I think it gets a little artificial to try to make all these dualities uh, match up exactly. It's like taking a pie and splitting it up in, in slightly different ways. And our tendency is to want to make everything from one slice match the other slice. But if you've cut it this way and you've cut it this way, they won't, they won't all match. You can't get everything in this category to match with the category that somebody else uh, put in one half. But let's look at some of those examples. A philosopher, uh, in general, might just think of the subject-object duality of the world. Uh, the Chinese talk about yin and yang. Uh, the Advaitists will talk about Brahman and Maya. The Sankyans will talk about Purusha and Prakriti. You know, we even find jokes in, uh, in the gospel about Purusha and Prakriti. Dr. Sarkar said, I'm giving you these two globules. One is Purusha and the other is Prakriti. <laughs> so this idea of dividing the whole world into these two categories, you see, can, can sometimes seem a little funny. And Dr. Sarkar was bringing that out. And so then the master replied, oh yes, Purusha and Prakriti are always together. Haven't you observed pigeons? The male and females cannot live separately. 
Wherever Purusha is, there is Prakriti, and wherever Prakriti is, there is Purusha. Then, of course, in the Shaiva traditions, the Shakta traditions, and the Tantric traditions, you find this idea of Shiva and Shakti. Even in our physics, we find dualities. We have the duality of space against time. We have the dualities of uh, positive charge against negative charge, and north poles against south poles, and so forth. So we have all these ways of splitting up the world into dualities, but it is uh, important to remember that sometimes this doesn't always uh, line up appropriately. I've seen some very odd <laughs> articles trying to make physics into male and female. I mean, it just really d didn't work for me. Now, I mean, it worked for somebody, and if it did, that's fine, but <laughs> it didn't work for me. All right, so... I mean, again, there's some similarities that you can draw, but it just, it, when you try to push everything into a particular category, it begins to get a little odd. All right, so it's clear from the Eastern perspective anyway, from this, surveying all these different philosophies and so forth, that God is both, or if you prefer neither, male nor female. So it is something neuter from which springs the idea of this male-female duality. Now, from the Western uh, traditions, many people in the West might automatically respond to the question, is God male or female? That God is male. And so let's just take a moment to examine that. Of course, many pre-Christian traditions had male and female deities. So before Christianity spread throughout the Western world, uh, there was this idea that God could be conceived as feminine or masculine. But this is not so clear in our current predominant Western traditions. The tendency is to think of God as a masculine figure. And yet we still find hints of this duality or this existence of both aspects. For example, in Judaism, we have some you know, vague feminine aspects in the ideas of the Shekinah and uh, the idea of Sophia being wisdom. And in Christianity, you have Mother Mary, but she's you know, really not considered an aspect of God as such. And in Islam, uh, if you examine the uh, translations carefully, it's pointed out that this oneness of God is, is primary in, in Islam. And while most of the translations translate the pronouns referring to Allah as him or he, they could also be translated as gender neutral or as it. And so really, if you read the Quran that way, Allah is, is not a male deity, but a genderless deity. And you can get a hint of that from one passage in the Quran, which has been translated as he instead of it. But it says, he begets not, nor is he begotten. So you can see that this, this idea that he's neither male nor female in this sense. And then it goes on, it says, none is like him. So if you put it in there, it would be a more interesting sentence. It begets not, it is not begotten, and none is like it. It just is that in English, it, it just, just doesn't very appealing somehow. It's hard to be devotional to an it, <laughs> unless, it's, unless you liked cousin it in the Adams family or something. <laughs> All right, so, so how do we, let's take a moment to examine, how do we perceive and understand the universe through our senses? Well, it's by comparisons. We understand things by comparing them. This is shorter than that is. This is hotter than that is. This, is, uh, this goes faster than that does. All these different ways of comparing things is how we understand the universe. And as we mentioned before, one duality really doesn't fit 
everything, and you can't fit everything into just a male-female dichotomy, but we often try to do so. But our cultures tend to develop outlooks on life, and a society wants to have a stable society for it, the preservation of itself, and so it tends to develop paradigms about this universe, which tend to then mold our perceptions into that predominant cultural ways of thinking. Our thinking is then kind of automatically focused on it. We, of course, in science, we have this problem too. You start out with a particular paradigm as to what you think the universe is, and then you begin to interpret all your results that way and ignore results that don't seem to fit. You figure, well, you must have made a mistake in that experiment, so you want to do something else. So these are the problems. And the reason we're talking about this is it's going to be important for our spiritual practice to understand that our thinking and our, our habitual thinking patterns and our prejudices and so forth tend to be molded by the predominant ideas of the culture in which we have grown up. Language and social norms are the vehicles that societies use to perpetuate the prevailing paradigm that gives that society a particular stability. The behaviors and beliefs that fall outside these paradigms are considered deviant and hence shunned. Now, that's a very complex topic in itself when we're putting it into like two sentences, but you can have an entire course at the university about what is deviant, and it's an extremely complicated question. And you find, as we will find in, in what we're talking about, that the idea of what is deviant is not fixed, and it changes from one society to the other, and uh, it can be very complicated to try to pin it down. So our language and cultures tend to mold our ideas about gender. The un this understanding is going to help us to let go of some of our ego's attachments to the typical gender identities which many of us may have incorporated from our societies. Now regarding gender, our languages have some rather peculiar features. English doesn't do a lot of gendering of uh, various nouns and pronouns and adjectives and so forth. Uh, we still have a few remnants, like we'll talk about ships as being she and that sort of thing. But in some languages, all the nouns are classified as either masculine or feminine, or some of them will have masculine, feminine, and neuter nouns. And it's interesting that they've done studies about this, that it really does affect how people think. For example, in the answer to the question, uh, what is a key like? If you live in a culture that speaks Spanish or another language where key is feminine, the word key is often described as intricate or little or lovely. Whereas if you live in a culture where the key is a masculine noun, it might be described as heavy or made of metal or jagged. And so you see our concepts of what is masculine and feminine are built into our interpretations of words that are classified as masculine and feminine. And I listened to a program on linguistics and the professor was very, very amusing. And he said, you know, it really does get pretty silly, you know, why a desk should be masculine or something of that nature. Um, so th some of these ideas of how these words have gotten classified as one thing or another can be a, a very interesting study. Uh, another uh, more concerning study 
rather than reading humorous, looked at languages around the world and found on the average, countries where gendered languages are spoken ranked the lowest on the scale of gender equality. In other words, they tended to have more sharp distinctions about what men should do and what women should do, as opposed to cultures where the language was not gendered. And some of the qualities cultures associate with masculine and feminine are not innately male or female. They're culturally or socially construed roles. And cultures uh, differ in the way and intensity of their differentiation between the genders and the gender stereotype. Uh, for example, while in uh, all countries, adjectives associated with men tended to be ranked as stronger and more active, uh, there are sometimes some differences. For example, in Japan and South Africa, they rated male characteristics as more favorable, but in Italy and Peru, people tended to rate female characteristics more favorably. So we tend to have different ideas about gender uh, depending on where we live and how the language is spoken. They found that the Netherlands, Germany, and Finland, though, tended to be more egalitarian, and places like Nigeria and Pakistan tended to be more traditional in their ideas about gender roles. But in general, we should uh, say that uh, while there are some psychological universal stereotypes that you could say about uh, males and females, there are some real differences, and there are some differences that are found only inconsistently through cultures, and some are simply wholly mythical that have no basis in anything. So you see, for us on a spiritual path, this is good news because we can realize that our gender identity can be transcended. There, it isn't quite as fixed as we might think. It's not so absolute as we might think. And that makes it easier for us to transcend it. So let's look at some uh, androgyne symbols and see how they reflect some of these ideas. See, the problem is how do you symbolize this uh, unity splitting into a duality? That first separation, which separates heaven from earth, night from day, uh, light from darkness. Well, you, those words probably ring some familiarity. You've probably read uh, scriptures that talk about uh, some unfathomable uh, chaotic state that then is split uh, where the light separates from the darkness or the heavens separate from the earth or the cosmic egg splits into two and so forth. So these are, are metaphors of how this unity splits into a primal duality. The yin-yang symbol, again, that starts out with a circle, the most thought of as the most perfect, the most undifferentiated uh, form in geometry that you can think of. There are no edges, there's no starting point. It's just this one universal circle. And then it splits into two halves in a very interesting way. They don't just split it down the middle with a straight line. They split it with two curved lines, a half circle this way and a half circle that way. And then they put a little circle of the optic color in the middle. So it's a very interesting symbol that indicates how the one becomes two, and yet each part of the half is a complement of the other and contains part of the other. Again, just as Jung would say that each uh, female has a masculine aspect and each uh, man has a female aspect within themselves. They incorporate both, even though the exterior may be manifest in a particular way. Now in the Rig Veda, the androgyne appears in the form 
of a milk-giving cow, which is at the same time the divine bull with vigorous seed. Now, in the biblical story of Adam, usually Adam is thought of as the first male. But when some commentators have said, you can't really think of Adam as being the first male because there was nothing to compare him with, it with. <laughs> and there wasn't any other. And he contained within itself, Adam contained within Adam, uh, the essence of the feminine. And it wasn't until it split off of his side that you could really talk about a masculine and feminine. So in some sense, uh, Adam in the original state is an androgyne. And then the feminine and masculine have split out, and he retained the identity of Adam, and the other was Eve. Sometimes it's uh, the androgyne is represented as a double-faced head on one body. So you have one body and two heads, one feminine and one masculine. In the Hermetic image, there is a bird. This sounds like the, uh, the Upanishadic story of the two birds. There's one bird representing the immutable principle in comparison with another bird that represents the moving manifestation. So one sits motionless and the other is moving around. And the one that's moving around holds a vase uh, which has three snakes emerging out of it. And these three snakes also represent the masculine, the feminine, and the neutral central world axis upon which the two intertwine. Another image of the uh, androgyne has uh, the feminine aspect in the right hand holding a vase turned downwards from which a bird emerges in the direction of the sun descent phase. This bird is connected to the descent current from heaven to earth and the masculine and left hand grasp the vase oriented upwards from which a bird flies away in the direction of the sun ascent phase. In correspondence to the ascent current from earth to heaven, so the two then meet, uh, the meeting of both currents can then produce the neutral, non-polarized element, resulting in the combining action of the two complementary principles. Now in Hinduism, we often uh, represent the, this idea that God is both masculine and feminine with pairs of deities. So we pair Brahma with Saraswati, we pair Vishnu with Lakshmi, and Shiva with Kali or Parvati. Uh, but sometimes this duality is represented more literally. Uh, for example, we have representations where the deity is half and half. One half will be represented, say, as the god Shiva, and the other as Parvati, or as uh, one half being Vishnu and the other half as Lakshmi. And so th these are interesting images which are to, to get across the idea that while we primarily tend to think in terms of our normal worldly way of viewing things as things as either masculine or feminine, that really God is neither masculine or feminine, but a combination of both. In other cases, uh, we find that the deities will actually change gender, uh, that they will s switch from one gender to another as part of a story. For example, a Vishnu takes on the disguise of Mohini in order to distract the demons from stealing the Amrita. So uh, there are these interesting uh, things that occur in mythologies, which indicate that even though a deity may be primarily viewed as a masculine or feminine aspect, they can change depending on the circumstances. Uh, androgynous origin is often reflected in our creation myths and the myths of the origin of, of gender. For example, in Egypt, the god Ptah, 
is the womb where the primordial energy spreads and is both father and mother of all God. So it's a genderless being really from which the two genders spring. And then it said that each of them, the, both the father and the mother, uh, symbolize certain aspects of the original God. And there, there are way too many of these stories to go through them. So we'll just briefly mention that there are, there are many variations on this kind of thing. Uh, there's an Inuit story where there are two human beings. Again, they're usually referred to as male, but again, there's nothing to compare them with. Uh, but they desire to, they're lonely, a typical uh, scenario, and so they decide uh, to try to have children and discover that that doesn't work, and one of them has to then become a female. And so you have all these interesting uh, ways that societies have tried to explain uh, this way that the one becomes the many. There are, there are many somewhat androgynous birth stories in our mythologies. Ganesha is a very good example. The most prominent story is that Ganesha is made solely out of Parvati's dirt. There's no interaction with Shiva in the making of uh, Ganesha. And then you have, again, more complicated myths that I don't think we'll take the time to go through, but uh, Athena is born uh, out of Zeus's head. And so even though technically she was originally in a woman's womb, uh, she is thought of as androgynous and indeed has a, a very androgynous uh, quality to her. She never marries. She's very uh, strong and uh, she's a kind of this warrior goddess and so forth. So from this rather unusual birth process, the myth is trying to impart the idea uh, that she is an androgynous being. Uh, the Bodhisattva uh, Avilokiteshwar is really, uh, again, a blending of male and female aspects. And if you read some literature, she'll be re she will be referred to as she, and in others, he will be referred to as he. And it's interesting that uh, she, as a, she or he as a saintly uh, figure which helps humanity to overcome suffering, it is said that this deity will take on the form which is useful for the person that, that is trying to be helped. So if it's a boy or a girl, uh, Avalokiteshvara will transform into a boy or a girl in order to teach the child. If it's a monk, uh, it'll transform itself into a monk. If it's a householder, into a householder, and so forth and so on. So uh, that's why you find, if you've read anything about it, you, you sometimes wonder if it's the same thing you're reading about or if someone has made a mistake. But there, there are all these complicated stories uh, that show Avilokiteshvara as appearing either as one gender or the other for our sake. And really that's our basic uh, premise in Vedanta too, is that God takes on these forms for our sake. So for those that will be attracted to the ideas of God as mother, then God appears as mother. If you're attracted to uh, God, your ultimate friend, then you'll be attracted to another form of God and so forth. But it's interesting to note there are hundreds of ideas about more or less androgynous deities in our uh, indigenous people's belief systems. In fact, there's a list of 150 of them in, uh, on the internet. We'll just give a few of those examples. I won't run through all of them. 
For example, the Akan people of Kana have a pantheon of gods that includes personifications of the celestial bodies, like almost all of us, uh, our mythologies do, you know, the Mercury, Venus, Earth, uh, Mars, so forth. And several of them are androgynous. Uh, the one that represents Jupiter and Mercury and the moon are all androgynous. In Zimbabwe, it is said that they are ruled over by an androgynous creator called, called Muari, who occasionally then splits into a male and a female aspect. In the pre-Christian Philippines, uh, they also had a polytheistic religion, which included a transgendered or hermaphroditic gods, uh, and their names meant man and woman in one, and the powerful one, respectively. So this indication that this is a power symbol when you can see these two as one rather than as separate. Now, the rainbow is often seen as a symbol for uh, the, seeing the multiplicity from the oneness. And you take one light, goes through a prism, and it splits into all these different colors. So it, it's a good symbol for the representation of the many coming from the one. And so it's no surprise that there are incidences of rainbow gods or rainbow serpents, uh, which are described as androgynous. This happens frequently, say, in the Aboriginal people of Australia. Now, there are also incidences where, of course, various characters in stories, not necessarily uh, one of the deities, but say, just one of the characters in a mythological story, will take on a different gender or will disguise themselves as a different gender for a particular purpose of the story. And again, you have lots of these. We already mentioned uh, Vishnu taking on the form of Mohini. Uh, but there are others there. If, you've, if you're watching the Mahabharata, you may find the story of Shikandi. Uh, it's a very complicated story. She was uh, wronged by uh, Bhishma and wanted revenge. And so she was reborn as a woman, but raised as a man so that she could end up defeating uh, Bhishma. We find instances where uh, someone will take on a role as a disguise, as again, as we saw with Vishnu and Mohini. But also Arjuna took on a disguise as a woman in order to uh, fulfill their 14 years of exile without being detected. So he had to take on the disguise of the woman. Sri Ramakrishna did that a couple of times when he was a young boy in order to, to gain access to the, the ladies' quarters and have uh, some spiritual uh, fun with them. Um, so we have um, several other examples. For example... Sometimes uh, there's a, a merger of a twin brother and sister god. The moon is uh, Lisa and the sun is Mawa, and their combined form is then thought of as uh, a androgynous type of a deity. Now, when you consider that uh, in most of the traditional cultures of the world, uh, the spiritual life was not disconnected from the normal life uh, as much as we do it today, and frequently, people that were seen as healers were also the spiritual leaders. And so the physical problems were thought more in terms of, of a combination of physical and spiritual uh, problems. And these healers uh, were uh, often androgynous types of shamans. Very frequently, the shamans were some type of more androgynous kind of a being. Now, there's a, the a, an aboriginal story, which uh, is interesting in this behalf. 
it says that uh, there is a male god, Mahatala, who ruled the upper world and is usually depicted as a hornbill living above the clouds on a mountaintop. And then there was a female deity known as Jata, who ruled the underworld from under the sea in the form of a water snake. But these two manifestations are linked into one with a jewel-encrusted bridge that is seen in the physical world as a rainbow. So we have the rainbow image again. And this Matalajata uh, then is the one that's prayed to by the shamans, which are, are usually uh, transgendered females. Uh, and it's this idea that there's some sort of special sacredness to transcending the typical gender identity. There's similar uh, stories about uh, shamans in uh, the uh, Iban Dayak people in the Pacific Islands. Uh, in this case, uh, the story goes that Menjaya, Raja, Manang, began existence as a male deity until his brother's wife became sick. And this prompted Menjara into becoming the world's first healer, allowing her to cure her sister-in-law. But this treatment resulted in Menjara changing into a woman or an androgynous being. Uh, in, there was a book called Two Spirits where it mentions that in the Navajo culture that typically the people that would become shamans would be either uh, effeminate men or masculine women. And they were traditionally considered to be sacred beings because they embodied both the masculine and feminine traits. So in conclusion, we can see that our ideas about gender are strongly influenced by our culture and by our language. And understanding this will help us to overcome some of our more automatic responses and prejudices. And most importantly, it will remind us that living in this world of Maya, where things do not appear as they really are, uh, the idea of gender is really not as solid as we might think. We have superimposed these ideas of gender on ourselves and on the world in which we live. And so we've seen that the idea of an androgynous deity is very widespread. The, uh, the gender identity in our world mythologies is often fluid, changeable, sometimes vague, just frankly vague. Now, I know that many sociologists and psychologists will read these myths and come up with their own interpretations for their own purposes. They're, they're trying to deal with psychology and with sociology, and they're trying to understand those fields. So they may come up with uh, their own theories as to what these various myths mean. But I think for our purposes, for being on a spiritual path, the, the main focus of these things is to remind us that our true identity is one with God who is neither male or female, and yet both at the same time. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishate Om Shanti 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 Filled with Brahman are the things we see. Filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is. From Brahman all, yet is it still the same. Peace, peace.
Peace. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.